0: Welcome to Republic of Camberville. We're changing things up a bit for episode four. Please enjoy three shorter stories or short shorts. The first story is titled whatever happened to the man in the mountain and is performed by John Ty. Please enjoy.
1: So I'm driving north on an old road, 20 or so miles into New Hampshire. And in the passenger seat is Hernan Estevies, talking his goddamn mouth off and crying every once in a while. He doesn't know where we are, so he's narrating absolutely everything he sees. I've never seen a hawk that size, and this road sure seems like it'd be fun to drive, and look at those clouds disappearing into the hills. Have you ever seen a thing like that in your life? Well, have you, Joseph? Have you? Have you? Have you? Sometimes I answer, yeah, but mostly he just moves on to something else. An observer, this guy, dictating the world to me like I'm blind. But I can't be too hard on him because his wife just died. Bam, hit by a bus. He asked me to drive him somewhere, anywhere, and that's what I'm doing. Thing is, I don't know Ernie all that well. I call him Ernie because I have trouble with his name. He's never said anything about it he calls me joseph which i don't care for so i figure we're even we're both at the pickup games in the park down the street from my place in davis square he's short not very fast but he's got a hell of a jump shot sometimes he bets on the pro games and he always gets a solid split whenever he does that's where we were playing ball when he got the call about his wife and i drove him to the hospital near harvard because my truck was closest The guy didn't say a thing on the drive over, just sat there like we were going to the drugstore or the bank. But when he got there, he exploded with questions. Where is she? Is she all right? What happened? Is she going to be okay? And the doctor kept saying, sir, sir, sir. Then he went in to see her, his dead wife, and he was quiet again. I asked the doctor how this could have happened. And he said accidents are cruel twists of fate, which didn't really answer my question. Ernie just took his eyes from his dead wife's body and gave me this look like I've said something really comforting and like, it means so much to him, me being there. And I remember thinking, look, right then, like one of those dogs with the shriveled up faces and Big eyes that women think are cute because they're so ugly. So now we're driving through the hills of New Hampshire because I thought we'd hit less traffic if we drove north and because my ex-wife moved to Concord and even though she hates me, it calms me down just knowing she's close. Sometimes I want to sell my place to some yuppie developer for six times what I paid and move up there myself. But I promised her I'd leave her alone and I might as well start keeping my word. The trees are turning yellow and red, in real time, it seems. He starts asking me about the old man in the mountain, how he'd seen it a long time ago when he was driving up to Maine for some show he was doing. A show, I ask? Salsa, he says, back when I was skinny. I nod, and he goes on to tell me he used to be quite the dancer. used to tour around the country. I keep nodding, and saying things like, really, and that's so? I'm guessing that's how he met his dead wife, which would make a lot of sense. Flaka, he says. And I say, hmm, like I know what that means. (laughs) He starts crying again. He apologizes for it, and I tell him, for like the hundredth time, don't worry about it. I tell him his wife is beautiful, which is true way out of his league. He thanks me and starts crying all over again. (laughs) I shift around. (laughs) I cough. I'm about to tell him, hey man, I'm sorry. I really am. But I got to work in the morning and a basketball game that I got money on. So I'm going to have to turn around soon. But he gets quiet. Like... One minute he's crying, blowing his nose into McDonald's napkins, and the next he's frozen in my passenger seat like someone just stuck a gun in his face. I look around, but I don't see anything in particular—just the gray road wrapped through the hills, crowded with trees. Nothing I haven't seen a million times. We could go up to Maine, if you want, I say. Or maybe drive over to the ocean. I got no particular plan. I haven't heard any silence since we left. Truth be told, I don't like it. It creeps me out. He's got his eyes on the hills at those pops of silver rock in the sky. I almost tell him. The man in the mountain fell down. Don't bother looking for it. And take the next turnaround. Better to get back to Somerville... But I find myself saying, anywhere you want to go, man. And I mean it. I want him to say something, anything. The silence is screaming. I don't dare look at his face, but I know he's still looking up there at those ancient rocks. Maybe it's better if I just shut up, let him search up there as long as he wants.
0: This story was performed by John Tai. Look for The Spapera, John's seven-part animated sci-fi comedy series, launching on YouTube this November. You can check out the series' prologue now. For a link, visit our website at daniellehmonroe.com. This next story is titled, 24 Cutter Avenue, Apartment Number 4. Please enjoy. My apartment challenges the wind, retreats, and springs back upright with a quiver. An office chair rolls to the center of the room. My husband snores on the upper floor. I am in our three-season room-turned-artist studio, alone, the space heater turned off, sweating, listening to hail pick away at the roof. My pant leg is smeared with fallow blue, palms licked with burnt umber, I exhale infectious steam. Snot, like icicles, suffocate me. The wind pushes. My palette knife falls onto an empty tube of titanium white, and the ghost of an Indian chief stands over me with crossed arms. I offer him a drink. He shakes his head, and I tell him how three days ago my husband called me Trevor. I was kissing his ear, and I heard him murmur, Trevor, softly. Playfully. Trevor, stop it. His eyes stuck forward, his cheeks turning cadmium red, then pains gray. Trevor? And he said, Yes, Trevor. The Indian chief sighs as if he were rushed for time. Get off my land, he says. Incandescent zinc chases him, pulsing in the space he's abandoned, then clings to his turquoise headdress, awaiting. He tries to lift the palette knife off the floor, but cannot. I follow him into the kitchen. I ask why he lived here. His glare loiters around the magnetic knife strip. You stole this from me, he says. The colors in the kitchen are brilliant, immersing. Roushache. Other ghosts appear. My grandmother in a vermilion pantsuit. She smokes a cigar. My childhood rabbits. Boss, Frank, Butch, and Lady Cucumber Congregate by my feet Dead cockatiels chirp from the pot rack overhead A young girl I don't recognize heaves and studies me with trembling pupils The Indian chief rests his hand on my cheek It caresses, even though that is not his intention I understand the girl is his And she is forever dying, endlessly ceasing Get off my land, he says He cradles me The Indian chief understands a measure of reassurance is necessary, albeit insincere, in order to get what he wants. I cry, he sighs. I whisper, he is brave to go on dying. He says, thanks. I promise him I'll leave and he seems to understand that I'm lying but he holds me anyway. I drift towards sleep. The house creaks and sways, creaks and sways. My eyes press open. The colors grow brighter and brighter and brighter. Our last story for today is called Kid, and it's performed by me along with Michael Cole. Please enjoy.
1: It's a parent's worst nightmare. Leroy McLeod was enjoying a picnic in Middlesex Fells with his newborn son and the family's new beagle puppy. Suddenly, an eagle, yes, an eagle, dives for the puppy. Leroy ran to cover the dog but left his infant son unprotected. The bird then changed course and grabbed the baby and its talons, flying away. It's unclear at this time whether...
0: Deborah McLeod turns off the television. She has a great desire to sit down, to feel her body supported by something other than her legs. The news report has several facts wrong. Hunter is her boy's son, Leroy's son, and her grandson. The news station is filled with idiots. They didn't bother to fact-check the story before running it. If they had, they would have seen the Amber Alert posted yesterday. And she is sure they were not having a picnic. Who has a picnic in the middle of the woods? They were resting, probably. Perhaps Leroy was figuring out the next step in his rickety plan. He'd always been a senseless boy. She will have to write the news station a strongly worded letter. Deborah does not believe in regret, but it has consumed her all the same. Her beautiful, troubled son kidnapped her two-week-old grandson and the dog yesterday from Leroy's ex-girlfriend, despite his court order. Hunter's mother was asleep in her living room couch. Why she was sleeping at three o'clock in the afternoon, Deborah does not care to know. It's a pity, Deborah thinks, parenthood has made the girl careless. Deborah has always done what she could for her son, working nights to afford his medication, and later, the methadone clinics. Some had implied she was too strict with him as a teenager those locks on the outside of his door, and there were the bars on all of his windows. No one dared to say outright she failed as a mother. They could never understand his challenges. They could never know her life. The truth is, she can't help but feel a little relieved. The ordeal is finally over, the players found, and the death of her grandson. An inevitability. How long can a child go without his mother? could have, in a strange way, happened to anyone. This tragedy is not entirely Leroy's fault. Five years ago, a bird had almost stolen another baby, and they were always plucking up chihuahuas and baby goats. He'll tell her, as he always does, that he meant well. He just got messed up along the way. But this was not like the other times. Oh, God, she says and crosses herself. She has never used the Lord's name in vain. Deborah's legs go numb. She feels only the painful electric static in her veins. Hunter. She had seen her grandson only once in the hospital in the arms of her son's ex-girlfriend. His body delicately crumpled, his eyes big and wet, like an egg not yet fully cracked. Leroy's ex wouldn't let Deborah hold him, but it was enough to see him, her blood. Finally, her boy had done something right. She told Hunter's mother she believed this child would deliver Leroy, would make him decent again. She is so trapped in memory, staring at her grandson's fresh eyes, that she doesn't hear the phone until after several rings. She answers, and Detective Marshall offers his condolences during this stressful time. Deborah opens her mouth to say thank you, but a surge of ache erupts instead, and Detective Marshall has to hold the receiver away from his ear. Detective Marshall tries to read Deborah McLeod the facts he needs to give her. They have her son in custody. He has requested her and a lawyer, but she is sobbing into the phone. She seems to know what her son does not, that the child is most likely dead. This fact Leroy McLeod will not hear, Stubbornly covering his ears when Detective Marshall tries to read him the child's chances of survival 10%. Detective Marshall says he will call back at another time. He hangs up the receiver and writes inconsolable on his report beside the exact time 1841. He has already called his wife to tell her he will be late, but he finds himself dialing home again. Before he reaches the final number, he hangs up. The phone rings right away, and he thinks it is his wife who felt the same need for him as he did for her at the same exact moment. They have been married for over 30 years, and their craving for each other seems to grow as the decades pass. But it is the news station asking for an update. He says no comment and hangs up. Once in his squad car, he places a reflective raincoat and a flashlight in the passenger seat. He drives to the fells to look for Hunter McLeod's body. Earlier, when he told this to his wife, she said she would pray that he would find it, rather than the news station, which had no sense of decency. I'll leave some mulled cider on the stove, she said. This case unnerves him, possibly more than any other case in his 23 years since making detective. And later, when he is slowly scanning the woods, picking up where the other search team left off, He foolishly hopes a child's cry will find him from the trees. He knows it was not an eagle that stole Leroy McLeod's boy. It was a red-tailed hawk. They are endangered, but there are dozens in these woods. He can't help remembering that summer, ten years before, when his wife turned forty-two and gave up on having children, and instead began raising goats. That spring, four goats were pregnant, their bellies so round and heavy, they lay on the ground, their useless legs digging divots in the dirt. The first goat delivered a stillborn, but the next two had healthy kids. Within days, both babies disappeared without any trace. His wife was mostly quiet during this time. Detective Marshall can see her standing over the sink, plowing a dirty plate with a sponge. The mothers, she said. I can't get the mothers to eat. So when the fourth kid was born, Detective Marshall sat up all night, his flashlight and rifle trained on the hills for coyotes. But as the sun rose, he watched a hawk begin to dive. With the lights on its back, Detective Marshall saw only the dark figure fall swiftly to the earth and rise up again, its wings spread wider than his own body The hawk's second dive was only 10 feet from where he sat. The third time the hawk dove, Detective Marshall fired. He thought then, this will be a sight I never forget. He recalls the hawk diving, then swooping up like a slow, heavy breath. He didn't know it then, time is not that gracious, but it was here that Detective Marshall experienced his last fleeting moments of his own possibilities. The last time he felt what remained of his life was open to change. The last time he believed answers might come down from the sky. When he had to ask whether it was decent to shoot an endangered hawk to save his wife's baby goat. He remembers this now. This time he believed they would always be sad. And how, years later, hope had simply found them. They kept on living and one day they were happy again and without him understanding what he had done to find it the sun is almost done setting over the fells he stops in a clearing and holds the musty air in his lungs for a long moment before letting it go he marches on with a wincing heart his eyes tuned to the sky Thanks for listening to this episode of Republic of Camberville. Special thanks to John Tai and Michael Cole for their time and talent. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And visit me at Pod Tales, a festival of audio drama and fiction podcasting, coming to the Lunder Art Center in Cambridge, Sunday, October 20th. This free event features dozens of fiction podcasts like this one. Check out DanielleHMonroe.com for more information. Special thanks to Somerville artist Bethany Noel Murray for this week's show art. You can see more of Bethany's work at her solo exhibition "Brains Are Cool Even When They Hurt" at the VSA Open Door Gallery now through December 12th. Also thanks to Lenoy Alexander, Tina Abramson, Lilikuti Matthew, and K.V. Alexander for their logistical and spiritual support, and of course. To Darren Vermas for his sexy-ass audio skills. Join us next week for another new episode of Republic of Camberville. Next time on Republic of Camberville. They drove on, Mandira telling the children how ladies in India would never give birth at home anymore. How the new generation understood the importance of population control. She argued their parents are out of touch with the needs of society. The rich always are. All they cared about was organic food and keeping their children away from vaccinations. Idiots! You all would be better off in foster care.